if there were real leads flowing in the CRM, everybody would want to log in. There would actually be urgency. Hmm. There would be real usage. And so it wasn't just that we solved this pain of the clients need more applicants because it will help their process. That actually ended up solving our free trial pain because suddenly we could set up a free trial and kick a switch and real live data would start flowing into the system without the clients doing anything. And so the urgency of usage became very, very strong where they were like, holy crap, I need to log in here. Joe just applied for a job. Maybe we want to hire him. We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project, the podcast about the unexpected challenges of scaling to keep you from being punched in the face while you figure this stuff out. Today we have Ryan Kohler, uh, founder of a couple of apps, Applicant Pro and Refer.io, which is very cool, but we're going to be mostly focusing on Applicant Pro today. Ryan, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, I wanted to talk to you because you have demonstrable proof in uh, creating a, a money-making organization. There is no, uh, no question about that. So let's talk about uh, the big problem that you were solving. What happened? You, you've been in this field for a long time, right? Like 15 years. Yeah, I'm like a, I'm like a grandpa when it comes to owning a SaaS company, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you're, you're past a decade. That's an extremely long time. So we started this out, gosh, 12 years ago. Um, 12 years ago would have been like 05, 06. The world was definitely a different place when it came to SaaS back then. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of where we started. Somebody came to me, kind of usually how it works. Um, people come to me and say, hey, I know that you know something about the web. I have an idea. What can you do? Right? Um, which is usually like also they ask me to, you know, fix their printer or something like that. And I have no idea how to fix their print driver either. Um, but so, yeah, somebody came along and said, we have a bunch of clients struggling with managing their hiring process. Um, could you build a, effectively, it's like a CRM for mm -hmm. HR ladies, right? And so they said, could you build this applicant tracking system? The market was very focused on enterprise at that time. And so there wasn't a lot of SMB play. Even today, although, you know, clearly there's a lot more, there's a lot more validity to saying I'm going to go after small businesses now. But back then, that, that was not okay to go after small businesses. That was like stupid. There was no way that you could scale a company that way was kind of the implication. QuickBooks was the closest thing to somebody who was doing that. Okay. Okay. Now, when I came to the United States in 2009, was allowed to work in 2010 and that, the very first thing I did was sales training with a lot of uh, value-added resellers. And they were, you know, working for kind of small, small accounting firms that would touch, uh, mm -hmm. you know, other, other companies. And they were using stuff from Sage and Microsoft and that. And these were enterprise solutions. So... You were really kind of, and then that whole thing imploded after 2008, right? And a lot of people started crying and leaving their jobs because suddenly they had to be hardcore salespeople and that's not what they wanted to be. So you kind of came up during that period. Did anything disruptive happen to your business in, in that 2008, 2009 adjustment period or was it just oh. sort of like, hey man. <laughs> oh no, for sure. You know, we started with resellers. So that was a, a good way for us mm -hmm. to hack. Again, we're bootstrapped. So we haven't just been yeah. around for 12 years haven't seen this growth. We've also seen this growth in no VC. And so we started with these resellers who came along. They were kind of mom and pop, almost like insurance agent types. They were selling assessments and said, hey, we'll, we'll offer your platform to our customers if you can integrate it. So we did that from like 06 into 08 recession hits. And, you know, basically it implodes. Unemployment rate goes through the roof. Nobody's hiring. A lot of our resellers were just freaked out. Basically said, look, how can we sell hiring software if nobody's hiring? So for us, it was an interesting like, uh, blessing and a curse. So I, I kind of go with that theory. Every blessing is a curse. Every curse is a blessing, right? So all this kind of hit the fan 
And we started selling direct at that point. Nobody else was generating leads. Everybody kind of pulled back. Um, and so that kind of forced us to go direct. One of the biggest things we saw where, where the environment was going enterprise over to, to SMB, or at least what we were doing, there was a ton of resistance. Like we didn't raise money, but, but I did go pitch. And everybody that we pitched to said, you need to go upstream. You should sell to enterprise. You should sell to enterprise. And so there was a constant pull to say, go sell to enterprise, number one. Number two, because everybody sold to enterprise, there was no, um, there was no push to, to optimize their processes. If you sell to big giant companies, then rollout time can be six months or eight months. Mm -hmm. Like you charge massive setup fees. And so there's almost like you almost have not just no, no drive to make things more optimized, but actually some negative. Somebody found out that you charged $8,000 for something that took 30 minutes. Like you would be shunned for that. So you almost needed to, to go slow. So we were, we were kind of weird in that going, well, this is stupid. Why would we, why would we charge this? Why is this even possible? We actually had clients that would buy from us during their transition period to somebody else. They'd be like, it's going to take us eight months to onboard, so we'll buy your system to use for the next eight months while we onboard your competitor because the competitor would take that long. So yeah, a lot of that stuff was going on. Free trials were non-existent because if it takes eight months to set up, you can't offer a free trial. Yeah, this was like, there's a lot of things that today are just a given that didn't exist in like 05 to 2010 kind of range. Okay. And uh, really cool to be able to connect with you on this stuff and, and talk with somebody who had that experience back then and has seen the whole evolution because there's a lot of young founders who were in high school during that period and didn't experience it and, and, and think that everything's going to be sunshine and roses forever, right? Because they've been in this uh, sort of operating condition of, hey, everything's good. You know, people understand our market. We can go get money for, for funding. and uh, sell to anybody under the sun, right? And, and here you are, uh, right after you start out getting told by the people who have the money to wave in your direction, no, you should, you should go sell to enterprise. We, they, and they tried to get you off course, essentially, from, and, and from your mission. Yeah, and I think that's always true. I mean, every cycle has a, you know, there's this like innovation laziness cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So just because free trials are easy today, then what's the next thing? that maybe is being overlooked because everybody's dependent on the current status quo. Um, but I would say that's pretty consistent, like money, okay, I'm gonna be a little negative on VC here, but, but money tends to get you to do really stupid things. Mm -hmm. And because it's coming from people that may or may not be operators, may or may not understand your space, and they're looking for you to look similar to things that they're comfortable with. So at that time, most of VCs were comfortable with an enterprise play. And, and they all had this kind of same idea that, it takes the same amount of effort to close a deal, whether it's 10 grand or a thousand. So why wouldn't you close a $10,000 deal? But that's just not true, but that was accepted. So you're constantly fighting the generally accepted comfort zone, whether that's you as a founder's comfort zone or the VC money's comfort zone or the marketplace being the great one. Like there was a ton of comfort in no trial, long setups, long-term contracts. Like it was comfortable for the people in the space to operate they were the way they were operating. And they'd gotten away with it for a long time. I mean, that was the other interesting part. It wasn't just that the space was comfortable. Our users were extremely comfortable with the status quo. They weren't waking up each day saying, why don't you build us some new cool thing? They were actually saying, please don't. Why did you move my login? Why did you change? Even to this day, they would actually prefer um, consistency over innovation. Mm -hmm. Which makes it really hard to be the one person who's like, my users don't want me to innovate 
the funding people don't want me to innovate, the competitors are not being rewarded for innovation, they're actually being rewarded for consistency. And so here I am waking up saying I should innovate and nobody wants me to do it. So fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. And it is really something that today's founders need to hear because everything, I mean, you just listed them all off. Everything that are features of today that are expected were backwards, right? The reverse was happening back then. And folks, it could change. It could flip back over in another 10 years. You don't know, right? Everything could implode now. Oh, and then we'll be cursing free trials, right? Oh, look at the, the pitfalls that led us into. So tell us about the problem that you were solving for the target market and that, that enabled you to make sales and scale here. Sure. I mean, so, so we had a handful of different problem sets that we were faced with, right? Number one, effectively we're building a CRM. So we're building a tracking system that allowed, allowed job seekers to go apply for a job and allowed HR to track those people from the point they applied until the point that they were hired, whether that was collaboration with managers and sharing them, those applicants or whatever it was. But effectively it was like a CRM. Um, and, and that's the best way to look at it, right? We were tracking all these people. Um, and so that was kind of the problem set was the CRMs that were out there were very, very robust or the applicant tracking system, what they're called, very robust because they were sold to enterprise. Mm -hmm. And when they would try to come down market, it was hard for them to scale back. Um, they couldn't get the price cheap enough, so people would use it. It was way too cumbersome. I mean, it was built on automation and, and all these things that nobody wanted or needed. And so that was kind of the first problem set was no, it wasn't sexy to build a simplistic system because it was the world of ERPs. It was sexy to build something very robust and difficult. Right. And so that was kind of problem set number one. Could we really build a simple enough tool um, that would work for the needs of these small businesses and gut out? everything else that was just confusing or cumbersome or difficult. That was kind of problem set number one. Problem set number two was, was, was this system actually needed? Um, as you get into tracking, you know, if, if unemployment's low and you have no applicants, then what the heck good is a tracking system? It's kind of like, if you have no leads, what good is a CRM? You only got five leads, so you probably track this on post-it notes, right? And so it's kind of this chicken and egg scenario where, the, for a big company, tracking is difficult and you need a very robust system, but for a small company, they might not have anybody to track anyway. So did we really have the right problem defined or were we defining the problem based on the industry's definition of what it should be? And that, that was really our very first hurdle to come across was, um, were we allowing the industry to dictate what the system should be like and how it should act? because of fear of being made fun of or being told that you sucked or that you, you, know, you weren't as good as everybody else? Or did we have the guts to actually say, wait a minute, let's actually talk to the user and find out what the core problem of the small and mid-sized company is. And let's build around that even though we might be made fun of or told that we're not good enough. Okay, so there were some triggers, some symptoms of problems that these folks had that you found out by talking to them. What an innovative idea, I know. And so what did they tell you? Well, I mean, really it comes down to the power of being naive, right? I had actually, we, I laid out the first system. I'd never logged into a competitor system. I didn't have any, I didn't have any working use of it. I never used it before in my previous life. I'd never seen it. Nobody on my team did. And so there's this power of being completely naive that says, well, I don't know. We should go talk to them. And what, what we really sat down was we said, show us the process from beginning to end. Like, what is it that this hiring process looks like? One of the biggest insights you find with that right off the bat is you can't even constrain that. You should widen out 
the definition you're looking for. Instead of just saying, tell me about the, the tracking process, you want to say, tell me about the entire hiring process. Like okay. stuff that stuff I didn't even care about, stuff I knew we weren't going to build, stuff that I knew wasn't going to be part of our solution. I want to widen this out and say, I need to know the whole ecosystem. Show me from beginning to end. At what point, you know, from when somebody gets fired or when your boss says we need to hire a new person, all the way to the end when they're on board and in your system and in your company and doing their thing. I want to know everything, especially stuff, not just stuff I don't do, but especially stuff I don't do. Because, because by opening that up, it suddenly for us found out, wait a minute, applicant flow is actually a bigger problem than tracking. Okay. If you don't have flow, you don't have tracking. And right. look at, think about the CRM space. Salesforce really hasn't dipped their foot into marketing. But HubSpot has because they realize that traffic matters before tracking. And so for us, it was that similar methodology of going, wait a minute, there's this big burden of finding applicants. And if we find applicants, then they'll have something to track. It will actually create more burden on the core thing of us finding more people to dump in the funnel. Okay. So that what you really found out there was what the key measurement was. Yeah. We found out. Yeah. Pour into the tub, basically, you know, Mm -hmm. if you didn't have that going on the rest of it, who cares? Yeah, so we found this super interesting scenario, which was actually great because we've now been through two recessions, mm-hmm. potentially three, right? That, which, was, which was kind of when we started, unemployment was really low. And so there wasn't a lot of applicants to track, which meant the value proposition of our software might be weak. So at that point, we said, gosh, we need to figure out how to drive more applicants into the system. All of a sudden, recession happens, unemployment skyrockets. Now we've got insane numbers of applicants. And now they're saying, hey, we have a hard time tracking and filtering these people. We're, we have a screening problem. There's too much flow coming in, mm-hmm. right? So then we start working on the screening solution. The economy turns around. Unemployment comes back down. Suddenly we're back. We have this seesaw of like mm-hmm. not enough applicants causes a marketing problem. Too many applicants causes a screening qualification problem. And we seesawed back and forth between there. Um, the real light bulb happened when it's like, we don't need the economy to create this. We can actually create it. Mm-hmm. We, can create, we can create these like yin and yang of pains, right? And so we get a customer and we go, if we, in, if we solve your, your applicant flow problem, that's going to be great up to a tipping point where it freaks you out and you're overwhelmed. And then we can come in and solve the screening problem, which allows you to cope with it. And so it's this constant yin and yang. When we decided we could do what the economy was doing, that's really where the power of, of what we did kind of kicked in. So that this is a solution for your, your marketing because you're bringing the customer around, you're educating them as to what is going to happen and what is important. And they get right. to adopt your point of view on it. And right. then you get to control the levers and the dials as to, as to how that happens. So your positioning is all figured out at that point. Uh, how long did it take you to, to get to that stage? Oh gosh, you know, it was probably, probably about four years in. And again, the benefit of the resellers was it, it allowed us to capture all these clients without, without marketing cost and sales cost, right? So we're able to scale up bootstrapped because the reseller was assuming all of those costs. The downside is uh, you're removed from the client interaction. So you're not, you're not listening to the client during the sales conversation. You're not listening to them on the support conversations because you're actually like tier two support. Right, so the customer's up here, the reseller's here in the middle, and then you as a founder or you as a, a product company are down a level. So again, blessing and curse. The blessing is 
it allows you to scale up without marketing costs. Your CAC is basically like nothing. I mean, like the cost per acquisition is like one month. Hmm. The downside, you don't, you're not able to listen to the customer. So as the recession hit, this huge blessing, our resellers pulled back. We're kind of at the sink or swim method. We go direct. Now we can start hearing the customer more. Right. We start actually being able to talk to them and suddenly, you know, light bulb goes off that it's like, wait a minute, we're, this isn't a hiring thing. This is a marketing thing. Like hiring is just marketing. And once that set in everything, it was like, yeah, it was like the crystal ball opens up the future, right? Because once you have, and this is like, once you have something to compare to, especially outside of your market, um, for us, marketing leads hiring by five to 10 years. So whatever's really cool in marketing will be really cool in marketing five to 10 years from now. And so suddenly we have this like aha moments where it's like, oh crap, like here's our crystal ball. We know what's coming next. You know, like Indeed, Indeed is this huge job board that's really just a search engine. They're basically Google for jobs minus five years. So whatever is going on, you know, at Indeed right now, it's probably what Google did five to 10 years ago. They're, they're dealing with, you know, too much garbage content. So now they're starting to adjust their algorithms. They're starting to figure out how to rank, how to filter people out, how all, you know, how keywords impact jobs, all these kind of things that Google figured out 10 years ago, Indeed's figuring out today. So that was really once we quit trying to compare ourselves to, to other people in the industry and truly said, no, wait a minute, we're going to define a new way to do this by comparing ourselves to someone else. Because coming up with that on your own is pretty tough. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a genius or a magician here, so it's much easier for me to find a lead dog to follow, just not a lead dog in my industry. Because mm -hmm. <clears throat> if you did that, then you'd always be the lesser version of yeah. that. And that ain't good for sales folks <laughs> yeah, you, you would be copying it there's so there's this book i kind of wrote it up in the notes here borrowing brilliance effectively it says there's there's not that many new ideas you're going to end up copying somebody so if you're going to copy somebody's idea you want to get as far away from your own industry as possible when you copy so you look at like TurboTax; they kind of copy like hollywood films and how that kind of stuff works and how they're creating you know, they're creating you, the, the uh, person doing your taxes as the, as the hero of the story and the IRS is the villain and you look at the way it sets things up and, and so they're copying something, some framework, some model, but not your competitor's framework. Because A, you'll always be behind, but B, you'll look like just a copycat. Yep. And so if you want clear differentiation, you need to copy somebody outside, whether it's science, if you get really far away, it's science and religion and those kind of things, but even just a different industry, like for us, it's HubSpot. We look at what HubSpot does and we kind of try to mimic inbound marketing with inbound hiring. And, and so that doesn't look anything like hiring, doesn't look anything like our competitors, but it is a very good lead dog to look at. Okay. And I really want to point out to our, our listeners, there was no like super crystal clear problem for you to solve at the beginning here. Right, there was kind of a vague one. You thought you understood it. The the your distribution channel was in the way between you and your customers, right? And and uh, an external factor, a recession had to remove them so that you were forced to go take control of your own marketing funnel, which is great. <laughs> I love that. And then, you know, you, you were kind of told what to do or what not to do, and you kind of had to ignore that. And then finding this key performance measure, what actually drives usage of what your uh, solution is going to become. That's, that's the key discovery I think you made. 
Yeah, for sure. And and it impacted, it impacted a ton of things, specifically impacted free trials. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, one of the unique things we found, like, if you take the same comparison of a CRM, right? So say I was selling a CRM, because that's probably easier for most of your listeners to connect with, because they all have CRMs. If I give you a CRM to try out, um, your main problem for free trial in a CRM is getting usage. And like, not just like logging and screwing around usage, like real world usage. Um, and so if, if the CRM relies on you putting in fake data, then you're never really going to use the system. But heaven forbid you found a way to populate real leads into the CRM. If there were real leads flowing in the CRM, everybody would want to log in. There would actually be urgency. Hmm. There would be real usage. And so it wasn't just that we solved this pain of the clients need more applicants because it will help their process. That actually ended up solving our free trial pain because suddenly we could set up a free trial and kick a switch and real live data would start flowing into the system without the clients doing anything. And so the urgency of usage became very, very strong where they were like, holy crap, I need to log in here. Joe just applied for a job. Maybe we want to hire him. And so again, we wouldn't have found that if we'd kept the the industry battle lines of applicant tracking systems don't do sourcing or in this world, CRMs don't do marketing, right? And so those were the battle lines. That was the construct of the industry was you don't do these things. You, you don't work well with job boards. You hate job boards. Job boards and ATS systems are going to fight, right? And so that really forced it. One of the things, just kind of your note on, we didn't have clear pain from the core user. So again, there's a catch-22. If you want to work with partners, you need to understand their business pain, not the core user pain. But so the potential of that is signing up partners means I understood what their pain was, but that was actually the pain I was hearing was the partner's mm-hmm. pain. So we actually started building a system to solve their pain, not the end client's pain. Their pain was make sure that when somebody gets done applying that the right assessment fires off. We want to make sure the second stage happens because that was how they made money. It was great for signing up partners, but it's a balancing act. Like you have the core user, you have your partner, you have yourself, you're constantly balancing everybody's priorities, right? But if you only listen to one, no matter who it is, hmm. then things fall apart. You, you could end up you could end up being a lopsided snowball, right? Or a lopsided rock rolling down a hill. But. So, and I think this highlights uh, what people will tell you is not necessarily the, the core problem. They, they will describe symptoms of what goes on, but then you have to back out, like you said, and ask for the whole picture because there's going to be stuff that impacts uh, how this thing is actually used. And... I'm just thinking back to 20 plus years of working with CRMs all the way from DOS driven things to uh, somebody slapping a, a graphical user interface over top of that, you know, and, and, and people not wanting to use that and struggling in the mid 2000s, right when you were starting this business. Uh, I was working with a national electrical wholesaler who was having that problem. And you're right, by, by front loading data into the system, that is brilliant right, to force them to use it. Because the biggest thing that we would want to log in for as credit managers, uh, looking at those CRM systems was uh, orders that were put on hold. Mm-hmm. And then we'd have to approve them, right? Should this go out or not, right? right? And that forced us to take action is the point that I'm trying to make here. And so you're saying in this field of, of attracting and, and filtering applicants, rather than waiting for 
the the HR manager at the small business that's bought this thing to manually enter in somebody's name and address and all that stuff, uh, which they may never do. Right. <laughs> you you have it populated in, and so and I want to talk to you about um, integrating with job boards and that kind of a thing. And this this you mentioned your frustration about how there's a lack of application flow from job boards. Uh, you know that that is stuff that is driving what we might term innovation here. Uh, it's certainly what's different. Rather than a passive system waiting for a user to enter information, you've created an active system that magnetically draws in stuff mm -hmm. that forces the user to use it. And user adoption is is critical. So how did you find out about the integration with job boards and that the process there wasn't quite working? Sure, so you know what, it kind of goes back to if you listen to some of the, the podcasts, whether it's from uh, Y Combinator or whatever, um, you have to do things that don't scale. And there's this interesting thing, you know, I'm not a programmer, but I hire lots of programmers and love them to death. But programmers have this funny thing of, I don't know, we'll call it marginal laziness, right? Like you get a group of programmers together and nobody wants to pull the trigger on doing something if it clearly could be said that it's somebody else's job. Hmm. So that, that was kind of what we were running into. And, and founders get the same thing where they're like, man, importing data is really hard. We should charge for it. And, and we're in our rights to charge for it and blah, 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 blah. But if you flip that around and say, well, what if importing data got usage in the free trial? What yeah. if that's a problem that we should be willing to solve? It's, and so I'm a stoic. And so I, you know, I read the book Obstacle is the Way. And it talks about how the obstacle could be the way. It could be the solution to the problem. So importing data is a good example. Importing data is a total pain, but it might be, um, something that if we're willing to do it, nobody else is that would cause usage or frequency or, or get the free trials working. So on the job board side, what we found was the, the job boards and applicant tracking systems were kind of attacking each other's business model. Hmm. The job seekers were on the job boards looking for jobs and, and applicant tracking systems like me would push our jobs up to them. But at that point, um, the way that we did it was based on the idea that a job seeker would see the job and leave and go away yep. to the applicant tracking system. And everybody just accepted that that was the best way to do it or that's the way to do it. Hmm. And just a sheer lack of empathy, right? As an applicant tracking system, I looked at it and went, I understand the job board's model. When somebody leaves their website, that causes them harm. They actually want to keep the job seeker on their site to apply for five or 10 jobs, not just one. Hmm. And if, so again, if you understand marketing, the last thing you want is somebody to leave your site. Like landing on one job and bouncing increases bounce rate. You don't want bounce rate. And so we looked at it that way and said, gosh, we should just talk to the job boards and figure out how can we support their business model, which was really weird for them. <laughs> uh, somebody else comes to them and say, look, we want to support your business model. What if we leave them on the site? What if we, you know, we'll be the first one to use your apply integration, which nobody, again, the clients weren't screaming for it. So the, the applicant tracking system guys were like, why would we build something clients aren't asking for? They actually don't want it. It's, it's this uh, chocolate broccoli thing, right? They want chocolate. They want people to come to the site. They like eating chocolate. Broccoli is make a good experience for the job seeker and find balance. Balance out job seeker versus employer. But job seekers don't pay people like me money. So it's hard to, it's hard to be the champion for somebody who doesn't pay you money. And that's really what the situation was. The job boards were saying, we want to keep the job seekers on our site forever. The applicant tracking guys like me were saying, well, we want them to land on our site because that's how it's always been done. And then we have tracking and data and analytics and all this kind of stuff that happens because of it. And nobody's asking for this middle connection solution. 
They're asking for jobs to flow up. They're not asking for applicants to flow down. And so it was just this like, nobody's asking for it, so why would you do it? Um, well, I mean, to me, I'd do it because it increased applicant flow. Right. And so I, I'm a broccoli guy. I'm like, I'm gonna feed all you guys broccoli whether you want it or not. I don't care if you're asking for chocolate. I'll find a way to feed my clients broccoli, which what they needed to hear was the job seeker needs to stay on the job board, at least to initiate some of those kind of things. And even today, that's still mostly misunderstood with our client base. Like I'm feeding them broccoli that's like covered in chocolate. They don't even know they're eating their vegetables. Hmm. Because we just, some of those things we just build in and, and don't really give a deep explanation for why we're doing it. They love the result, right. but sometimes they don't, they don't really want to see how the sausage is made. Right. Well, makes sense. And, and I love how what you tapped into here is how people were actually doing the process, right? How is an applicant actually applying? Like I went to a store this weekend and I bought a couple of bowls because uh, we keep breaking bowls in my house apparently. And <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to get a couple, a couple bowls. And at the checkout, uh, the lady took over the station from somebody who, who walked away like she had been there. Um, they didn't have enough change. She had to go away and get change. And then when she came back, she was in a rush, right? And I don't know about you, but when I get stuff back, change in that back, I want the bills and the coins and the receipt handed to me separately. And it doesn't take a whole lot longer because I'm going to put the bills in my wallet, the change in my pocket, and the receipt, who cares really. But what she did was, was she, she, after trying to load the, the catch register with the change that she brought, she handed all this stuff to me in one handful. And I was there with my wallet ready for the, the bills, right? And to put this in an orderly uh, way. And suddenly I've got all this crap. And it's like, what am I going to do with this? I had to go around to the other side of the counter and put it down and, and sort it out and that. And it, it made me think right there because the whole business I run is about process engineering, right? So I'm looking at how do people actually do things? And I'm like, wow, this is stupid. She was in a rush. And so she did what was most convenient to her. Hand me this picnic basket full of crap to get me out of there. But I could not actually use it in the form that it, the jumbled form, right? That it was handed to me, in. and so this is this is very similar to what you're talking about about how people were actually using the job boards, and, and it's not about what the the application board creator wants, or about how the HR manager at the small business wants, or you know even really about what you want necessarily, except you've identified this key performance indicator, which is do we get people actually using our software? Right. Yeah, I think so. There's actually a really cool quote. It's by Deming. It says, if you can't mm -hmm. describe what you're doing as a process, you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think most entrepreneurs probably accept that. I think they just lack seeing the balance in the world. Right. So, for instance, we could have just focused on just our client and we could have nailed down their process and we probably would have had happy clients um, and a system that looked like everybody else's. But instead, we looked at all the processes. Yeah. So we said, okay, this is, if you think about, if you're building a two-sided marketplace and this would make much more sense to you, I just believe everything's a marketplace so it doesn't matter. So I look at our system in hiring and I say, well, we have the application developer, we have the job board, we have the client, and we have the job seeker. So we actually have four people in play here. So let's look at the process from each of those standpoints and not just document what the process is, but like, what are the motivators? What do they want out of it? Where is their pain? I think there's a four-sided quadrant. I have it laying around here, right? Frustrations, fears, wants, aspirations, right? If you 
look at everybody involved, even people not paying you money. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say especially people not paying you money. And you, you drill not just the process, but what are they trying to do? Then you act as this like mediator that's mediating these sides saying, look, we're gonna come up with some unique solution because nobody's listening to the job seeker. So we'll, we'll actually be the voice of them too here. And nobody's listening to the job board. So we'll be the voice of them too. I can have all these voices in my head and nail down a process that will work for everybody. Hmm. And suddenly you have this unique situation or unique solution. But if I'd been a normal focused person, only focused on the person giving me money, I wouldn't have stumbled into a lot of the stuff we stumbled into because I would have just not cared about the job seeker. I would have just not cared about the job board. I would have just focused on what my, the person paying me money would do. So it's not actually not that like, it's not that hard or creative. It's not like some inspiration hits you. It's more of, can you look at all the user's sides? Can you see their process? Can you look at fears and pains and aspirations and goals and what they're trying to accomplish? And suddenly you see that really as a software company, we're just acting as this mediator. We're just the guys that are the glue in between everybody's wants. And suddenly you get, you're able to balance people, right? And, and we were just lucky. We did that early. All of a sudden today, customer experience or job seeker experience is a big deal. But 10 years ago, five years ago, nobody cared about the job seeker experience. When unemployment's high, nobody cares. Um, because there's this, actually this unique correlation, like you just described, you're in the store, you're the customer, you should be right because you bring the money. And so most companies get it that they're like, the, the customer brings me money, so they're right, we should try to make their experience good, even though they even fail at that. In the employment area, because the employer is giving money to the job seeker, Somehow in their head, it's clicked that they're the customer. The employer's the customer and the job seeker's trying to sell themselves to it. Mm. And that led them to saying, well, we don't need to care about these job seekers. We're right. We have the money. As the economy switched from, say, skilled labor to information or knowledge workers, that's just not true anymore. Like programmers and, and marketing people and content providers, all these people are providing massive value, not money to the company, but value to the company. They're our customers. But that wasn't, that's barely starting to be talked about today. Like job seeker experience and candidate experience, that kind of stuff. Like five years ago, we were like shunned. Why do you care about this? Why do you care about, I mean, think about mobile wasn't even, mobile wasn't even embraced in the hiring process until like three years ago. Like, and so, yeah, so it's just interesting for, can you step outside of your core? Can you really show empathy for everybody involved? Because inside of that empathy and knowledge of the process will come amazing insights into what's coming next. Because at some point, employers or at some point, retail had to care about the customer. At some point, even if we automate it with, you know, you look at McDonald's and you look at their little stupid kiosk that they've got now, like it's a terrible customer experience. There's way better ways to actually make that work. Mm -hmm. But that requires empathy all around it. And so, and understanding the process. I bet the people who designed that never eat at McDonald's. And so, anyway. Oh, great, awesome. great example. <laughs> well, I wanted to check in with you about something before we wrap up. Um, I've learned something today, folks. <laughs> that was, it's been a great reminder to back out and, and look. It's about awareness, right? What would you have to say to uh, somebody who's, who's trying to develop a solution uh, and they're afraid of doing what you did, i.e. talking to all these different stakeholders because they think, oh my goodness, how can I possibly please four different customers, let's say, right? I, how, how can I do this by just not concentrating on one? Won't I screw up if I try and please all these crazy people? 
Sure. So number one, it's not about pleasing. Mm. Right? Let's, let's start with that. This is not about pleasing all of them because no matter what, it's, no matter what you're going to have somebody who's unhappy. No matter how much balance you find, it's a give and take. So number one, it's not about pleasing. It's about understanding them. Period, end of story. You need to understand your customer. You also need to understand all the stakeholders and whatever they're doing. You probably need to understand their customers, right? And so it's not about pleasing them. Even if you say, look, we're going to build this system and it's going to be a bad experience for job seekers. At least I know it's going to be a bad experience. I've, I've got it in the top of my head that's like, I can't really solve X for them because of what my client wants, but I at least know it. I'm cognizant of it. So then at every opportunity when I go to develop something, I can check that down and go, okay, is it possible for us to solve this job seeker problem while we're developing this? Cool. We can, we can solve X right here by doing it this way. And so, again, you're not going to please them. You're not looking to serve all of them, but you need to be cognizant of the entire ecosystem. And so once you have all that, you, you build personas for all of them and just start checking them down. I'm going to build this feature now while I'm in there in the code. Is there something I could do that wouldn't harm our core constituent? but also could make something easier for these three people. Oh, you know, if we just tweak it a little bit, it would actually be a little bit better for these other guys. Cool, let's do that. And so again, you're not, we weren't, we weren't mobile to begin with. It wasn't a great experience for the job seekers in our version one, it sucked, it was terrible. It, it was everything the clients wanted. I actually built the entire system from the ground up a second time because of that. Because I said, look, we started the first time by saying only focus on people paying us. Now let's see if we can find more balance. But that's, it is fearful, but what I can tell you is that it might not pay off this week, it might not pay off next year, but at some point, your industry is going to evolve. And most likely when it evolves, it's going to evolve around who the core constituent is. Think about the hotel world and the hotel websites or the restaurant world and Yelp. And look at how the power has shifted between being just about the providers, the hotels or the restaurants, to giving users power. You would be at the forefront of that if you'd actually listened to everybody and at least were cognizant of what the pain was. Mm -hmm. But if you were blinded by it, maybe it won't be this year that you get hurt by it, but at some point as the evolution happens, your knowledge around all the players is what will help you have foresight into what's coming next. So again, I'm not saying go develop everything to be based on people not paying you money, but you have to have the knowledge. Because really at this point, like throwing code and building systems is a commodity to a certain extent. Everybody can copy whatever you're building. What they can't copy is the depth of knowledge you have about the problem sets. That's not something easy for them to see. In fact, we were confusing probably to most of our competitors for a long, even today we probably still are. They're like, what the heck are these guys doing? Why are they building this? This is stupid. This is weird. Like the design of our pages and some of the stuff we were doing was really strange compared to them. They could have copied it, but why would they? They didn't understand the, the fundamental, like how we viewed the world. And without our worldview knowledge, they didn't know why we were building what we were building. So again, you just need a base of worldview knowledge, right? Fascinating. I mean, that was super insightful. Uh, with this, I, I'm going to, I want to rub it in. <laughs> how many revenue dollars have you grown to uh, with this, with this? Sure, sure. Uh, so this last year, we were at like 13.5 mil. And honestly, we've been slow. We could have done a lot. We could have raised money. We could have been more aggressive, et cetera. We, we have a very interesting story. We aren't just like bootstrapped. We're also 80% female 
even on the management team. For a tech company, we're very, very different. I got a thousand stories that we could tell on different lines of that, but yeah, we're like 13 and a half mil. That's like six years on the Inc. 5000 list as a bootstrap company. Um, clearly, there's things we could have done that would help us grow faster or not. We tried to, again, stay straight to, to, true to our core. You know, I didn't want to go the route that the VC guys were going, so right. I tend to be a contrarian. If you want to get me to focus on something, tell me I can't do it or I'm doing it wrong. I'm probably going to double down. Uh, and so, so, yeah, I mean, but still, you know, that's, that's not a bad-sized company. Profitable. We've been profitable forever. We haven't, you know, we've been able to manage this growth um, and add new clients. We onboard something like, gosh, we're probably like 150 to 200 new clients a month. And so, you know, we just keep churning along and throwing new clients on the system. And yeah. And increasing that awareness of, of what's yep, going on. For sure. All right. My guest today has been Ryan Kohler, founder of Applicant Pro. Ryan, where can people find out more about you and, and the Applicant Pro? Sure, sure. So they can head up applicantpro.com, www.applicantpro.com. Uh, they can send me an email, Ryan at Applicant Pro. Um, hit me up on LinkedIn, however they want to. LinkedIn. All right. <laughs> well, I'll be connecting with you there to share this episode. Sure. Folks, this has been um, a, a really great view or shift of view in uh, how folks look at problem solving. So I encourage you to watch, listen to this again, because I think there's a lot in here. I know I will be. And Ryan, if you're open to it, I'd love to have you back on again, um, maybe in six, eight weeks, something like that. Sure thing. Um, when we can dig into some of those wild stories that, uh, that you were talking about. Sure thing. Thanks for being here. Thanks a lot.